This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen. It is Monday, July 25th. Uh, we are pre-recording this episode, partially due to a scheduling need with the studio here at Full Headquarters. Also, because I'm just really excited to have my guest today, uh, Rana Patanjali. So Rana started at the Motley Fool as part of the Analyst Development Program in 2014, uh, about half a year before I joined the company myself. So she's now part of the awesome Inside Value and Income Investor newsletter teams. Welcome to the show, Rana. How's it going? Thank you. Thanks so much, Vincent. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so, I believe uh, we were chatting earlier. This is your first time on a podcast, right? So, what do you think so far? That is true, and you introduced very well. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so, I hope uh, you know, not too nervous. I, I think that you have a lot to share uh, with our listeners today. We're going to be touching on uh, some earnings and just uh, things like consumer staples and the outlook for that industry overall. So. Uh, I think you're going to do a great job. Um, and why don't we just jump right into it? Uh, so, something that you had mentioned to me in the conversation we had before the show was just uh, some some of your views before we jump into the earnings of the week, which was uh, Unilever, the acquisition deal that they went through. But that's around consumer staples. Right. So, you know, the consumer staples business, as we all know, is a steady business. And think about it good or bad times, you're not going to stop brushing your teeth. Or you're not taking shower for that matter. So, <laughs> uh, so the business itself remains very resilient. What has changed over the years is the competitive dynamics of the business. So, for the first reason is the changing consumer taste. People are willing to try new products more than they used to. And the second and the more important reason is technology. So, because of technology, it has become easier for a new uh, small rival to enter into the space. So, entry barrier has lowered. And uh, one example is like, you know, if you want to launch a new product, you have YouTube or Facebook to put your advertisement out. So there are multiple ways now to reach out to consumer, and those ways are cheaper as compared to what it used to be. So that's one part of technology. The other part is that you have Amazon Web Service. So for a new e-commerce website, it's cheaper to you know put your website there, and uh, it's further. Uh, added with uh, Amazon's uh, distribution center, so you can easily distribute your products to people. So because of all of this, sort of, you can say the, comp- the competitive dynamics has changed. And for uh, established players like uh, Procter & Gamble and Univer Limited, they have to change their strategy. So they have to be more nimble, they have to be flexible, and to an extent, aggressive in their growth strategy. So. This is some change which I've seen in consumer staple business over the last two years. Okay, so uh, some of those things that you mentioned with the competitive dynamics, I think they kind of really flesh themselves out and make themselves very apparent uh, with the recent earnings report that we had from Unilever. So uh, right. a few things that I noticed, uh, you know, not only uh, especially with what you mentioned, the smaller companies having an easier way to get started. Uh, an announcement that they made, I think it was maybe the day before they released earnings, was with Dollar Shave Club, which we'll right. get to. Um, but uh, anything jump out at you from the report? Uh, they reported on June 21st. Uh, their stock has been relatively flat since they reported. Um, but anything uh, jump out at you from the report that surprised you or, or things you'd want to take note of? Well, I, I wouldn't say it surprised me, but the thing which I liked was their organic sales were up 4.7%. 
and organic sales is the sales which are coming from uh, pricing and volume and uh, uh, this is from last uh, the number from last six months and for the quarter itself the volume was up 1.8 percent and I think for consumer staple or for any business for that matter the only sustainable way for a company to create value over long term or to maintain its competitive advantage is through grow is by growing its volume mm-hmm. so I prefer companies which is able, you know companies that are able to grow their volume uh, quarter after and quarter, not just build it off of price increases for example not only build out of price increases but also by you know reducing their operating expenses which is a good way to create value uh, but in order to be sustainable for a longer term you have to grow your top line by growing your volume so I liked Unilever in that regard but the bigger news for Unilever for, from last week was that they acquired Dollar Shave Club for one billion dollars. Yes, and uh, for our uh, audience who don't know about Dollar Shave Club, all you have to do is go to YouTube, type Dollar Shave Club, and you will have the CEO advertising about the blades, and apparently they're very awesome. So, uh, and uh, Unilever paid one billion dollar for that, mm-hmm. uh, and the company uh, is expected to post a two forty million dollar of revenue uh, this year. So approximately the the company has paid 4.2 times sales for Dollar Shave Club. Okay. Which seems a bit expensive, but if you look at the way Dollar Shave Club has grown over the last uh, three, four years, so yep. in 2012, they had $4 million of revenue. This year, they're supposed to post $240 million. That's a huge jump. Unbelievable growth rate. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, considering they only started in uh, 2012, so over about four years, they now, I think, have over three million members as part yes. of their subscription model. Yes. And I think that's uh, you know, a part of the reason why uh, Unilever was so attracted to this deal was uh, it's a very unique business model You know, with the subscriptions. I think they offer... Uh, Essentially, new razors for as cheap as like three dollars per mm. month, including right. shipping right. for the consumers, and it's definitely uh, basically uh, changed uh, that part of the industry. I think I saw in a presentation Unilever had had mentioned that for male grooming, it's estimated to be a forty-two billion dollar market. So this company is still a small piece of that, but they're really cha- uh, they've definitely presented a bit of a, a conundrum for Procter and Gamble, for example, which is known for like the Gillette brand of razors, which right. uh, has really hurt or I, I guess uh, impacted. Their business as well. No, it has hurt their business. Maybe not not in terms of value, because as you mentioned, uh, the blades which Dollar Shave Club sells, they are of lower prices. But in terms of the number of people who are shaving or who are using Dollar Shave Club's blade, blade has increased. Mm-hmm. So that way, uh, they have taken share away from Gillette. And also, the strategy makes sense for Unilever because Unilever has a massive present in a presence in emerging markets. So, sixty around sixty percent of their revenue comes from emerging markets. Dollar Shave Club sort of gives them an entry ticket to explore uh, their growth territory in in the U.S. So they can, you know, figure out more ways to grow in the U.S. market. So I think that way strategy makes a lot of sense too. Do me. you think uh, just the fact that? Uh, for example, with Dollar Shave Club, they are able to offer those floor prices, like you mentioned, that potentially uh, Unilever is interested in taking that abroad, where in emerging markets where they might be more price sensitive. Oh well, I think right now their strategy is to grow, grow Dollar Shave Club in the U.S. market mm-hmm. itself because sort of uh, their penetration is still very low and yes. there's a lot of scope of growth. Also, Dollar Shave Club has started selling other stuff like gel 
and you know um, other men grooming things so mm-hmm. uh there's a scope of growth there so once you have attracted a consumer base you can sell you know you can cross sell stuff and you can grow from there so um i think for now they they are looking at the us market and uh, the ceo of unilever paul paulman has said that if they will sorry if they will get more uh, such acquisition deals they are willing to explore that because it's a way to learn about how technology can make a difference to a you know to a sector like consumer staple which is known to be the steady one yeah and i think uh something else that really jumped out at me just potentially why the company uh why Unilever here would be willing to pay a little bit more of a premium valuation for this company is just the way that they have been so uh, effective with their marketing. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, not only with social media, with that uh, YouTube ad or the ad that's on YouTube with this, uh, the founder of Dallas Shade Club, I think it has like over 20 million views. Million views. So yeah. uh, that was very powerful. And, um, you know, they also, as a small company, surprisingly kind of jumped into television commercials as well, which was. Uh, uh, quite surprising for a company their size, and it was very effective. Like uh, I think it just connected with a lot of their customers who uh, didn't essentially like the previous uh, business model that they were forced to adopt into with their the, with the cartridge refills. Right, and this is the reason why Dollar Shave Club is not profitable yet because they are spending a lot on advertisement and marketing. But as I mentioned earlier, because of you know YouTube and Facebook, it has become easier to market your product. It has become easier to reach out to customers that has lowered the entry barrier. So for a company like Procter & Gamble, they need to be a lot more aggressive and keep all their eyes and ears open that what is coming from where and just think ahead of the competition. Okay, so you know, we brought uh, obviously we have Unilever uh, and Procter Gamble, definitely two of the, uh, the the big names really in this space facing off against each other. Uh, one thing that uh, in my research for these companies I've noticed is that Unilever definitely has more of that exposure to emerging markets, for example, and I think that's sustained a little bit of the growth that they've been able to enjoy. Whereas Procter and Gamble obviously has been going through its own t- uh, kind mm-hmm. of like. Uh, uh, reorganization efforts. So, but you know, with these two companies, their outlooks. What do you think? Uh, is there anything that jumps out at you? Uh, just in Unilever, uh, Procter and Gamble, brighter future. Well, those two are very established companies. There's no doubt about that. So, Procter and Gamble has number one and number two position in most of the categories in which they operate. So that's there. They have Tide, Pampers, and such established brands. Mm-hmm. So. That's there. The thing I do not like about Procter & Gamble is that they have not been able to grow their volume. And as I told you, I think volume growth is important for a company to be sustain- sustainable over long term. And they have uh, put a couple of efforts, which I do appreciate. For example, they have slimmed down their portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so, so they, they can concentrate on that 20%, which used to derive almost 80% of their operating profit. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. They have also um, made their operations leaner so that they can have, um, like they can increase their free cash flow margin, which is great. But but both of these companies are trading at a price to earnings, multi- forward price to earnings multiple of 21 and this is when Univer Limited has a better growth prospect. Last one year, Univer Limited has uh, posted a revenue of 4%, while uh, Procter & Gamble has been struggling. I think the revenue growth was around 1%. Mm-hmm. And it has been so uh, for the last two years. And this is the reason why we sold Procter & Gamble uh, in Income Investor, because the company needs to really think out of the box in order to grow uh, its volume. And if you look at Univer Limited, uh, 
A, they have a strong presence presence in emerging markets, which yes. gives them a stronger, like you know, bigger leeway to grow because you have a you know growth coming from rising uh, uh, income from people trying out premium products. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a person who's born and brought up in India, I can tell you that Univer Limited does a very good job in reaching out to not just uh, you know big cities but to villages and tier 3 tier 4 towns where you know they they are able to sell the products not not just to medium or high income group people but also to low income group people so they have a wide variety of products and they they really do a very good job in penetrating to to you know, to the local markets of emerging markets. So that's, that's really interesting. Uh, kind of like a first, per, uh, you know, first uh, direct experience uh, for you. Then uh, it's I, I wasn't aware of that, and uh, I think it, it touches again on Unilever their their strength in some of those markets. True. So yeah, between uh, Procter and Gamble and Unilever Limited, I like Unilever more. The the one thing too that uh you know you mentioned just in terms of being more aggressive with growth, I also noticed. Uh, I think some in their presentation here, just to give everyone an idea on the Procter and Gamble side, actually, and uh, the in the difference that just to give to you uh, the dynamic, two thirds of their revenue in North America and Europe, whereas uh, which is their more mature and established markets, while their de- developing markets like Latin America just ten percent, all of India, the Middle East, and Africa just eight percent, China eight percent, Asia eight percent. So th- just a, a really. Uh, uh, a big difference from Unilever. True. So, and this is the reason why Procter and Gamble has been struggling to grow its volume because uh, around sixty percent of its, forty uh, percent comes from the U.S., which is sort of a mature market, and emerging market contributes for around thirty-eight percent of revenue for Procter and Gamble, while for Unilever it is sixty percent. So you, you know they have a bigger audience to talk to or to sell their products. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, really great to hear your uh, your insight on this, you know, consumer staples with these two bigger companies. Uh, but next, I'd kind of like to touch on some uh, on one company that actually just reported today, which is Luxottica, and then uh, Time Warner, which will be uh, previewing their earnings as I think they report in early August. But before we move on, uh, I wanted to thank Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting the show. Listeners who have purchased a home in the past or are currently scoping out the market, like myself, actually, you understand how frustrating and time-consuming getting a mortgage can be. Fortunately, Rocket Mortgage is bringing the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. With Rocket Mortgage, you, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's tailored to your unique financial situation. And it's fast, powerful, and completely online, so you can do all this from your smartphone or tablet. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. So, moving on, as I mentioned, uh, to Luxottica, which is actually a company I don't think I've uh, covered previously on Industry Focus. Uh, they reported earnings about, I think, two hours now. Yeah, that's true. And they make some very popular eyewear I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with. Uh, think Ray-Ban. Oakley, Oliver Peoples. They also license with a ton of world-class names in the like luxury fashion uh, fashion industry. So think Burberry, Chanel, Tiffany, Moore. And another really interesting part of their business is you know they have this retail network, mm-hmm. uh, seventy-two hundred stores worldwide. Uh, think uh, so they have chains like LensCrafters, Pearl Vision, Sears Optical, Target Optical, Sunglass Hut. And on top of all of that, uh, they also are the home of iMed Vision Care, which is the second largest vision benefits provider in the United States 
serve almost 40 million people. Uh, people, excuse me. So, uh, you know, quick rundown. I know, I know they just reported, but anything uh, jump at you from the from the from the report? First of all, you summed up Luxottica pretty well. Even <laughs> though the you know Luxottica is not so much known to everyone, the mm-hmm. brands are, as you said, ev- yeah. everybody knows about Ray-Ban. Sorry, um, everybody knows about Ray-Ban yeah. and Oakley. So. Uh, I was just looking at their uh, numbers. I haven't had a chance to look at the transcript. So, the core sales was up uh, 1.6%. Uh, operating income was up around 1.5%, which I won't say is great. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, uh, to my, I think if I have to evaluate their um, results, it was sort of below my expectations. And uh, the company has lowered its forecast for the next half of the year. So, now they are projecting... Two to three percent of growth in revenue for the year, as compared to what it was. Uh, they were earlier projecting five to six percent growth um, for the year. Also, the company's long-term strategy is to grow their um, operating income one point five times revenue for this year. Now they are projecting one time, like the revenue. Yeah, just one time. Jim. One time revenue. So that is there, but. But over the long term, I think the company has a lot of potential to do well. And the reason is that eyewear industry is structurally growing market. For the next uh, five years, the, the industry is supposed to grow at 3.7%. And that makes sense. If, if you see more and more people are using electronic devices, so they will go for eye checkup and <laughs> there is going to be a need for uh, you know eyewear industry. Also, uh, for as we are having global warming, there are more and more people who are going to use sunglasses uh, across the world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, from these tailwinds, I think there is a there is a way for the company to grow. And Luxottica's market share is sixty percent in the in the market in which it operates. So they are sort of top dog. They very are, dominant player. They are a very dominant player. And also, the company is not a completely discretionary business as we think of uh, eyewear businesses because 46% of revenue comes from prescription frames yes. and lenses, while 54% comes from sunglasses uh, and the, you know, the luxury branded glasses. Mm-hmm. So that provides some sort of consumer staple you know, side of the business. So you know, even good or bad times, if you need glasses, you will need glasses, mm-hmm. right? So that's there. And also because the company is vertically integrated, it helps the company to launch the product quickly and to understand the consumer well. So, you know, uh, Luxottica takes a lot of pride in the fact that the company is able to design, test, and launch the product, do manufacture, um, design, manufacture, and launch the product all in the same day. They move their supply chain so quickly. So that puts Luxottica ahead of competition, I would say, with such a huge market share, with a growing market, and as you said, they have a brand which is, which resonates well with everybody. Uh, Exotica has a lot of scope of growth in future. Absolutely, Rana. I think the the really important and cool thing about this uh, the company that, that you touched on was that vertical integration, where it's. Uh, I think they have like six production facilities or something along those lines. One in uh, yeah. three in Italy, uh, one in China. I think one in the U.S. as well. Right. But you know, have being able to go from uh, for Ray Ban or for Oakley, uh, like you mentioned, from the production, from their design to the production, and then they have this giant network of uh, retailers to sell through this for the distribution. Right. It's it's very powerful. 
Yeah, and and since the the manufacturing capability is so strong that even if a company like uh, Chanel or Prada wants to manufacture uh, its own glasses, they will tie up with Luxottica in order to do that. So the company itself, like like. They literally dominate this mm-hmm. market. So, and uh, one, you know, one uh, point I would like to leave with uh, you know listeners and people who are who are interested in looks at is the idea that you know the business is still very focused in Europe and North America, especially if you're looking at it in terms of it being more of a luxury brand. I think 79% of its sales for the in its uh, in its last uh, quarter that I have the financials for, not yet for this most recent reported one from today. Uh, so it's a large runway for developing markets. Oh, there is, there is, and they are looking into that market. They mm-hmm. have been tying up with local, you know, local companies where they can uh, use their own technology, their just uh, their technology and uh, their experience to launch their products into into emerging markets. So definitely, that's the case. Okay, okay. So uh, we have a few more minutes here. Uh, I wanted to wrap up on Time Warner, and. Uh, they report earnings on August third before the market open. So there's been a lot of chatter in the investment community after Netflix kind of took a beating for its yeah. l- latest report. Uh, Dylan Lewis and Simon Erickson actually have a great show on this from July twenty third, an industry focus. Uh, so Time Warner, their three primary business segments uh, are Turner, HBO, and Warner Brothers. Turner think the TV networks, you know, HBO obviously the premium, uh, the premium service, and then you have Warner Brothers, which is some of the tele- television shows and obviously the big block. Busters they produce, yeah. and uh, for me personally, uh, I was really ex- I actually saw a lot of the Comic Con trailers that came out for uh, Warner Brothers movies th- like Justice League and th- things like that came out mm-hmm. over the weekend. Uh, a lot of buzz around those, but I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, you know, kind of investors should be looking for in this report, what to expect maybe longer term as well. Right. So uh, my investment thesis for Time Warner, and we own this company in Inside Value, and I own it myself as well. So my investment thesis for Time Warner is there is gonna be a change, uh, and the change is already happening in the way consumers, you know, consumers uh, watch television or watch entertainment. But in this whole entertainment ecosystem, content provider and good content provider are always going to win. Mm-hmm. And they are always going to have a dominant position in this whole ecosystem. And for a company like Time Warner, which has HBO as a, a I think that's a very valuable asset for the company. And uh, they also own channels like TBS, CNN, Cartoon Network. So they sort of provide a whole entertainment package, whole family entertainment package where you have something for kids, you have something for adults. Mm-hmm. So I think Time Warner is gonna be dominant in in coming years, and the company is trading at a price to earnings of sixteen, which is like a lot of pessimism has been priced into into the stock. I would say, and uh, you know, if you if you look at Turner, they have three of top ten ad supported ca- cable networks. So if you decide to slim down your uh, cable channels. And you decide to keep, let, let's say, I'm going instead of having hundred uh, channels, I just want to keep fifteen or ten for that matter. I think you will end up keeping channels that are owned by Time Warner. Part of that business. Mm-hmm. So uh, coming to earnings, the a couple of things which I will look for is um, how the subscription growth is going on in HBO. What mm-hmm. kind of subscription growth they're reporting? They just um, showed their. Uh, finale of Game of Thrones and apparently they had like 8.9 million viewers mm-hmm. just for the finale which is 10% um, you know higher than what they had in season 5 finale in the previous last, finale yes, yes last year so uh, that's one thing I will also keep an eye on the churn rate like how uh, the traditional um, TV is going so 
what churn rate is how many people are canceling their subscription so that's one thing then mm-hmm. uh another metric which i would like to look at is the engagement metrics which they show that you know how many people are watching the their top prime show or uh, i have the number for game of thrones the similar number for other uh, channels as well okay so yeah that's all okay so uh you know i think uh with hbo especially with game of thrones they've obviously very well-known network. They've won so many awards for their content, uh, with H- especially at, at HBO. It's definitely a very powerful business. Uh, some people, I think, are kind of nervous uh, with, because it's only got a few more seasons, and you know HBO is kind of on the hook to try and replace that. But you know, I think at this point, they've generally proven themselves to be very savvy about uh, keeping a pulse of what viewers are interested in and keeping you know the string of winners coming mm-hmm. um, but you know that is something that all of these content providers uh, challenges con- content providers face is you know making sure that what they put out is you know popular with viewers yes and and that is true for every content mm-hmm. provider as you said so the strategy is to keep launching new products or you can say new tv series and this is where experience does matter yeah Time Warner has done a superb job in you know coming up with series that resonates very well with its audience, and um, I don't see the reason why that should change. The other reason was that initially Time Warner sort of you know was apprehensive of cutting its ties with cable cable companies, where you know now if you now Time Warner has become a lot more open about going to customer with its own uh, network or with its its own apps where you feed uh, your series to customers like or consumer has an option to watch video as per their time and mm-hmm. you know, as or the way they want to uh, consume uh, content with like the direct HBO services with for direct example. HBO yeah. services right okay so, uh, uh, so uh, any other thoughts for for time Warner otherwise going forward uh, no, I think the company has is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, uh, investing in the content, investing in technology so that uh, it can, uh, you know, it is able to uh, provide entertainment to consumer at their time and the way they want the to. The way they want it, absolutely. They want to. So, okay, yeah. so uh, just another reminder, if you're looking for those results, they are reporting on August 3rd before market open. Uh, otherwise, thanks a lot, Rana, for joining us today. Thank you. It was glad to be here. Yeah, no problem. So that's a wrap for us today. You can continue the conversation via, uh, with us via Twitter at MF Industry Focus or send us any questions or comments via email to industryfocus at fool.com. You can also enjoy the other great podcasts from The Motley Fool by checking out fool.com slash podcasts. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 